Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. There are a few writers who have become synonymous with a sport. Dick Weiss is one of them. He's known as Hoops for a reason. He's a walking, talking, typing encyclopedia of basketball. His historical knowledge about the sport is incredible. Lace up your sneakers. This is going to be fun. Hey, Hoops, it's so nice of you to take the time to be our guest on Pressbox Access. Hey, listen, it's my pleasure, Todd. I'm just surprised it's not in a restaurant in Columbus. (laughs) Or somewhere on the road around the world, right? (laughs) Oh, God, I've been all over the world, I think. You have been all over the world, Hoops. Uh, Twitter, your Twitter description says... Covered college basketball for 8,000 years. It's true. <laughs> I, uh, I'm immortal. Have you heard? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, not quite 8,000, but quite a while. 1973 to 2013, you were covering college basketball and NBA for the Philadelphia Daily News and then later the New York Daily News. And ever since then, you've been uh, doing it for Blue Star website. You've been going around the world internationally for them right. and, and basketball times and on and on and on. I mean, nobody knows basketball quite like Dick Weiss. How many games do you think you've covered, Hoops? Oh, God. Uh, you know, <laughs> there was one. There was, you know, you figure in a normal year you might do 150 uh, just college games, and that doesn't include the high school games uh, you got to. When I was in college, uh, I used to go to every high school game and every college game at the Blestra, and Sandy Padway, who was the uh, uh, columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, gave me the nickname Hoops, and it stuck. <laughs> when when was that, actually? That was, that was in the late 60s, believe it or not. Right, right. Well, I've always felt a bond with you, Hoops. I'm a boy from Kentucky. You're from Philadelphia. I spent a, I spent a year in Kentucky. I know the, you did. One I of know the best times of my life. I mean, really, it was one of the first times people had actually been behind the behind the curtain uh, in the inner sanctum of Kentucky basketball. I mean, I remember going for a tour of, of Kentucky basketball, and they showed me where uh, Rupp used to do his game plan in the, uh, in the bathroom. <laughs> wait, <laughs> a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Adolph Rupp in the bathroom? Wait a minute, what? <laughs> he used to go to the bathroom, sit down, and do it, and that's how he made up where his game plans. I mean, oh, oh yeah, it's probably a little bit too much knowledge. But, you know, nobody had been inside their offices, really. I mean, it, it was like the Pentagon Secrets. Oh, yeah. And, it was, it was uh, like the Holy of Holies. I mean, I was a student down there, and if you could get inside the, uh, well, the arena. Was, Marner wasn't going to let you pass a certain level anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, what year? You were down there with Patino. What year was that? That was 92. That was uh, the Leitner year. I still think about losing about $500,000 uh, on that shot because, <laughs> heck, you know what? He misses it. And Kentucky wins a national championship. And it turns out to be one of the great stories of all times because they basically had the last four guys off the bench from from that 89 team. And they had Jamal Mashburn, who uh, had just started to lose weight and become a first-round draft pick. And they played at the highest level uh, possible. And it was back when Rick was at the height of his powers and he was teaching the three, and it was that was, it was so much fun to be around that team. That I, and I developed a soft spot for the people in the bluegrass and for the team because it meant so much to them. I don't think I've ever been to a campus, Todd, where 
basketball is so important, not just to the campus, but to the entire Commonwealth. I mean, they talk about Kansas, they talk about uh, Carolina and Duke, and I know that they have their followings, but nobody, it's it's not that life and death thing. I mean, you would, I mean, people fell in love with Kentucky, and most of them had never even had a chance to go to a game. I right, mean, I'd, right. Be, I'd, I'd be in the grocery store, they would, there'd be four people paying with food stamps, and the only thing they wanted to talk about Monday when they went back to work was Kentucky basketball. It was that important to the state, and it gave the state a sense of pride, and I think it still does. Yeah, well, being from there and being a graduate of the University of Kentucky, I totally relate to what you're talking about. I mean, those guys on that team had just started at the University of Kentucky when I was graduating, so I knew those guys a little bit. Yeah, I knew Feldhaus and, and those guys, Pelfrey. And you knew they were never going to play, right? Right. They were just kind of left behind by the scandal. And next thing you know, Patino comes into town and whips them into some kind of machine, three-point shoot and press a machine. And you were there every practice for that season, 1991-92, I believe. Right. So you're in the spectrum that night when oh. Leitner hits that shot. What was it like in perhaps well, the greatest college is, basketball game? They call timeout, and I go up, and my wife is in the stands with uh, – with this little old white-haired lady, and she's gone, now, now, nothing can happen in 2.5 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Showing what I know. I, I'm one of those people who, in retrospect, still thinks they should have guarded the inbounds pass because it's funny, earlier that year, Duke had played Wake Forest, and they guarded Grand Hill on the inbounds pass in a similar situation. Grand Hill threw it out of bounds. But that was the perfect pass, the perfect catch. It was like, it was like destiny. But I, you know, I I love the fact that normally Kentucky likes to celebrate teams that win, and they are they're unbelievable at remembering chapter and verse on everything that happened in a game. Heck, I got down there. People were telling me about the 1958 national championship game with a fiddle and five. <laughs> and they knew everything. I mean, I felt like Johnny Cox was my next door neighbor. But I mean, get back to Lexington and Rick says you got to come back down because I was just going to stay home because I live in Philadelphia, right? And I, and I moved all my stuff home. And uh, he said you got to come back Tuesday. And I came back Tuesday, and they uh, hung the four kids' uh, jerseys in the rafter, uh, and. Uh, uh, that was a special night, and it really put Kentucky basketball in perspective for me. I mean, the appreciation for what they did for the university. Now, God forbid, they haven't won a championship since 12. I'm sure last year they were ready to hang the coach. Right. Uh, they, expect, <laughs> yeah. they expect to be back in the, in the Final Four every year or every other year. Well, I think, you, I think you bonded with those folks in Kentucky because their love for the game is the same as your own love for the game. I mean, I, I know you also from covering college uh, football, which you've done for many, many years. You were even the president of the Football Writers Association and in that organization's Hall of Fame. You've covered, what, how many college football championships? Uh, I've covered 39 college football championships, and I've covered, this is the scary part, wait for it, 48 Final Fours. 48 Final Fours. Now, um, that's my point. Now, you know college football, but they call you hoops for a reason, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I made a, I set a goal, I want to do 50 Final Fours. And then maybe I'll go off and become a patron of the arts. But, <laughs> uh, but the, ne- the, next, uh, the next two years are in New Orleans and in... Uh, and in Houston, and I, I, I definitely want to be around for them. And I'll, go, I'll go back every year and and watch it. I mean, you know, it keeps it, it keeps you young when you're around when you're when you're around young people. Although they're all making more money than I am now. Yeah. Well, hoops covering that many Final Fours and covering the game of basketball for this many years. What was it about that particular sport that captured your imagination early in your life? You know what? I, I just fell in love with the game. I, uh, it, w- it was fast enough, 
and it had strategy. And I was lucky. I grew up in Philadelphia where we had a bunch of Hall of Fame coaches. I mean, Harry Litwack was there. Jack Ramsey was there. Um, Tom Gola was there. Um, Chuck Daly was there. I mean, these guys are all in Naismith. And um, it was like going to a clinic every, every, every... And the other thing that... That, that really caused me to fall in love. Back then, uh, they used to have double headers at the Plaster Todd. Right. I used to go down. I used to take public transportation down to West Philadelphia, go up to the top of the hill, catch a bus, and then catch a, uh, and catch a subway down to 34th Street, get off at, at Penn and walk over and pay a, a dollar and a half to sit in along the baseline or three dollars <laughs> if I wanted to, to splurge to sit on the sidelines and you'd see a double header and most people my age grew up with it because back then almost all the Philadelphia teams were composed of local kids we didn't really have travel teams so these kids got to see the world and coaches didn't have that much of a uh, recruiting allowance so they basically recruited locally and kids particularly from the Philadelphia Catholic League their goal in life was to play in the big five for one of those five schools well let's so, explain let's explain for younger listeners what the big five was I mean it was kind of created in the mid 50s around 56 you got right. Villanova Temple St. Joe's LaSalle and Penn. Penn what was the big five to Philly I think it was uh, their connection to National College basketball because the city series games between those five schools meant so much to everybody at each school. I mean, and the best part about it was every team from the 50s through the 60s had at least one year where they were the best team in the city, including Penn. And Penn had a great team in 66. And sadly, they never got a chance to capitalize on it because the Ivy League decided that they were going to protest the 1.6 rule so they wouldn't let Penn play in a tournament. But four years later, Penn had a 28-0 team. It was ranked number three in, in the country and ended up losing to another Philadelphia team, Villanova, in the regional finals the year that Villanova lost to UCLA in the championship game. So there is history there. I mean, it's ironic for as many great coaches, uh, there were, there's only one big five player in the Naismith Hall of Fame, and that's Guy Rogers. I mean, Cole wow. and Arizona are in it, but, it's, but they, they played before the, the birth of the big five. So, you know, the, the Sixers have always been in, you know, Philly for a long, long time. It's an NBA right. town, but really it's a college basketball city, right? I think so. If you take a look, you know, even when Julius was there back in the 70s and early 80s, it wasn't like we were getting huge crowds. I remember going to uh, uh, a playoff game against the Bucks on an Easter Sunday afternoon. The Phillies were playing across the street, and they were pretty good at the time. They drew 33,000, the Sixers drew 67 for a game seven of a playoff series. <laughs> Do you think the college game, because of the neighborhoods and, and, the, and the schools and the talent, the college game was just more of a, just the local thing instead of the NBA? Yes, and you could relate because it was like 13th grade. I mean, everybody, uh, when I was growing up, used to go to the public and Catholic league playoffs. And then the big five was like 13th and 14th grade for them. They played freshman ball. And uh, then they played, they play, if they could make it, they played on the varsity. And everybody knew these kids from the time they were in 10th grade because high school basketball was big in Philadelphia. I mean, I'm not saying it was national. It was national. There were no power memorials or demathas, but uh, the, the games were competitive and all the kids played on the playground. The playgrounds were filled with kids playing. Well, you think of the talent. Think of the talent that came out of Philly. You had Will Chamberlain, Earl Monroe. I mean, on and on, the Philly right. guys. There, I mean, there, you, there is that Philly culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, back in the 50s during the golden era when Will played, I mean, Overbrook could play with anybody in America. They were, they, they had a secret scrimmage that year, his senior year, where they played Villanova, which was an NCAA tournament team. 
They beat him. I mean, because no, nobody could deal with Wilton. And Villanova had Jack Devine and, and, and Bernie Schaefer, who were big five Hall of Famers, uh, you know, the, or big five greats. And uh, and uh, and Overbrook with, with Wilton, Vince Miller, a great high school coach, uh, uh, they they beat him. They beat him in scrimmage. And well, to tie it to tie it into the the you know the modern culture, you even had you know you saw Kobe Bryant as a kid in I Philadelphia, did. right? I was I was at the uh, I was at the district semifinals when he played against Rip Hamilton uh, from Coatesville, and Kobe had thirty four. I think we all realized then that he wasn't just going to be uh, another pretty face. I mean. Uh, it, it was unbelievable. I mean, you know, and I still remember the first time I saw him. He's at Lower Marion. You know, he, he just started playing when he was in eighth grade, when he came back from Italy. He was actually a better soccer player. Really? And, yeah. Well, we, his dad played, Joe played in Italy, and he was a very good soccer player. Then he came back here. He went to Ballackinwood Junior High School, and he was okay. Two years later, he's playing at Lower Marion as a Sophomore, I'm thinking, well, he's going to be a nice local college player. The next year, his junior year, he goes to ABCD, and all of a sudden he's a top five player in the, in, in the country. And by the time he's a senior, people were looking at him and saying, oh, my God, this is the best player in the country. What changed? I, th- I just think yeah, it must be the gene pool. That's all I can say because he had mad skills. And uh, I still remember going to the press conference that he had, Todd, before he uh, signed, uh, before he declared for the league. They had 18 TV cameras from up and down the East Coast in the high school gym recording his announcement. I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, it was, I wasn't around for, I mean, I, I wasn't in New York for Alcindor when he played for Power, but this, this had to be pretty close. I mean, uh, I was, could, I was covering Xavier basketball in Cincinnati at the time and they were playing, um, you know, they were in the Atlantic 10. And so Kobe's father, Jelly Bean right. Bryant was an assistant of LaSalle. LaSalle. So was Kobe tempted to stay home and go to LaSalle? I think um, one of the reasons Joe got the job was they thought it would give them an enormous advantage. But I, I think in the end, he knew that what he was going to do because Joe, Joe stopped showing up in the office and sending his daughter in to pick up his paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I think it was either going to be Duke Carolina or or the NBA. And uh, I was with him and his dad. Sonny Vicario used to hold an All-American game in Detroit, uh, and I was out by the uh, I was I was out by Pistons uh, Stadium, and we we were in the hotel, and I was in Sonny's room, and they were there, and you knew then that they were they were they were they were going to do this. I mean, uh, it just seems crazy to me because I had never really experienced and then we had a, we had a glut of players I you know I mean Garnett I mean take a look at the best players in the league for a long time it was people who left right out of high school well all those stars in Philadelphia from Chamberlain on up to right. Kobe and, and beyond they all had a place to play and you mentioned it the Palestra they had a great stage to, to play on. For somebody who's never been to the Palestra, which you, by the way, named the Cathedral of College Basketball. <laughs> I did. I can't what, believe you remember that. <laughs> yeah. What, what, can you describe the Palestra for somebody who's never yeah, been there? You know, it's a gym. It was built in 1927. Uh, it's the most intimate place where you can watch college basketball, 8,800 seats. There isn't a bad seat. And when you would walk in, and you'd look up into the corners. If the corners were filled, you know the game was going to be a sellout. But you felt like you were right on top of the game. And for years, when I was in Philadelphia, they had a pit for the media right at center court. So you were literally seated right next to the visiting coach. And you were right on the floor. And so it was like having the best seat in the house. I, lo- 
I loved it. I loved every chance I got to go there. Well, there was a wasn't there a period of time for like seven or eight years? Ten years. Where you never I went. Ten, you never missed a game, ten, right? I went. Yeah, yeah. That, I'm very impressed you remember that. I went ten straight years without missing a doubleheader, and uh, it was. Uh, I think it was like I'm going to say sixty five through seventy five. And uh, really, if you look at the golden years of the, of the Plester, it was probably 1962 through 1972. That's when you, I mean, it was before TV really took over. I mean, they used to broadcast the uh, City Series games between the local teams, but it wasn't like you had a bunch of double headers being broadcast the way you do at ESPN now. And so uh, you most people would rather go and see it live. I mean, everybody calls it, everybody called it date night because when you're in college, <laughs> that's where you took your date. Well, well, didn't you, you and your wife, Joni, your first date was a double header at the Plaza, first, right? First date <laughs> we went to, yeah, I still remember LaSalle playing Western Kentucky and Clem Haskins, 1966. Do you have a favorite Palestra moment or story that you want to share with us? Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, St. Joe's is playing Bowling Green, and Bowling Green is number three in uh, in the country. And when is uh, this? What year is this? Probably Nate, the Nate Thurman, Howard Kovizier era back in sixty the the December of the sixty two, so sixty two sixty three season. Bowling Green had the first eight guys out from Bowling Green dunked the ball. St. Joe's comes out. They have one guy who can dunk. And they're in the, this tur these terry cloth uh, warm-ups. Uh, and you're thinking, no, this can't happen. This can't happen. And Jack Ramsey's the coach. And he was pretty famous in Philadelphia for the amount of upsets over nationally ranked teams that he had during his time at St. Joe's. And the game came down to the last three seconds. I thought Bowling Green was going to run out the clock, and then Tom Wynn steals the ball. They call timeout, and I, and I swear the entire crowd must have started singing the Hawk Rouser song. You <laughs> felt like, I mean, I got goosebumps. And the, that, the next play, Jimmy Lonham is supposed to take the last shot. He's not open. He gets the ball to G, the late Jim Boyle, who puts up uh, a bank shot in the ball, as you might expect, rolls around and around and around, and then got, and then uh, falls through. And I'm down there with a bunch of kids who were friends of mine from the local CYO team, St. Bernard's. And the next thing I know, all of them are storming the floor. <laughs> so, Hoops, you were storming the floor. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> well, you were always on the scene at the Palestra, and you were there was no better scene when I think about college basketball Nationally, nationally, when I think in the 1980s, beyond, you know, when I think about the 80s, I think about the ACC and the Big East. And really, you were around to chronicle that era of college right. basketball, the growth of it. Can you tell us a little bit about the Big East and the rise of the conference in the 1980s? You know, when I was growing up, my biggest disappointment was the fact that after LaSalle won the national championship in 54, we went through a long, long drought where no Eastern team really had a chance to win a national championship because they couldn't recruit the best players. Most of them, if you're any good, you're going right down south to play in the ACC. We lost a lot of great players to, Vera, to there and Kansas and other places. And... When the big when Dave Gavitt came up with the idea of the Big East and then got a deal with uh, ESPN uh, TV, I mean he created a super conference of urban Catholic schools for the most part, who uh, who dotted the East Coast at eight to nine teams, and all of them were being coached by guys who were either Hall of Fame coaches or borderline Hall of Fame coaches. And the competition was not only good, but kids in the East decided, you know what? I can stay, I can play in my hometown. I'm on TV every game. 
and I'm going to play in a tournament in the garden that does, that sells out every year. And the Big East really became a big deal. I mean, and we were, they were lucky because the first couple of years they were we get Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen, who still might be the best two players ever to come out of that league. And great. Why, I, hold on a second. Why, why do you think so? Because not only did they set the tone, but they both put their teams in a position where they could win national championships. Look, in, in 85, the year Villanova beat uh, Georgetown, we had three teams from that league in the Final Four. Right. I mean, Villanova, Georgetown, and, uh, and St. John's. And uh, I just think the skill level, Ewing was easily the best prospect in the country is... Uh, his uh, senior year at Cambridge Ridge in Latin, and he was a dominant force um, in the uh, in, in college basketball during his time at Georgetown. They got the three final final games. They won it all in '84, and Chris Mullen was the quintessential New York gym rat who could who was probably as good a shooter as there was in the country. He kind of predated Steve Alford in that in that regard. They both played on the uh, 84 Olympic team and then they both played on the uh, the dream team. But so you uh, had so you had Hall of Fame coaches, you had great talent like Ewing and Mullen and television, right? So it all yeah, combined. You, yeah, you literally could not win a championship unless you had four or five pros and everybody did because I mean it was it was unbelievable every game, and it was and it was physical. I mean, I still remember the fight between uh, Pearl Washington and uh, and Patrick Ewing. I mean, well, tell us it, about it. Well, things got heated in the uh, uh, Big East semifinals in 1985, and uh, Ewing ends up taking a shot at at, at uh, a roundhouse at, uh, at at Pearl, and if he hits him. It's the end of her career because Ewing's a big kid. And, you know, but they, Georgetown had a history of being uh, very physical. And uh, I think that they intimidated a lot of teams with their physicality and their aggressiveness defensively. But kids in the Big East adjusted to it. And they knew that you needed to fight force with force. And so, so many of these games were like... Uh, we're, we're, we're like rock fights in the playground. I mean, it was just crazy. I mean, and, and, and the games were all, to win the Big East tournament was almost as important to some teams as winning the national championship because of the garden. I mean, because it was bragging rights in the garden for a year. I mean, it was great stuff. I mean, you know, I, I before the Big East, I went to, I would go to the ACC tournament. I started going there in 73 uh, when David Thompson was at North Carolina State. And North Carolina State had the one unbeaten season, but they couldn't go to the tournament because they were on probation. But I would go down the ACC. And even after I, I started covering the Big East, I went to thir 35 straight Big East tournaments in the garden before the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, and uh, were you uh, selling popcorn too? <laughs> you know, I used to go there, and they used to play the Big East final on Saturday, and then you get up the next day, go to the airport, and fly down to Greensboro, so you go to go to the ACC final. And so I used to do that until I realized that um, the seating show was probably more important to uh, people in our audience, and going to. Going to the ACC on a Sunday just didn't cut it because nobody really cared about the game. That's why the ACC since moved their championship game back to Saturday night. Right, right. Well, you mentioned the 1985 Final Four where St. John's, Villanova, and Georgetown right. were joined by uh, Memphis, Memphis, of all people. But three, three, uh, three Big East teams in that Final Four, and that's obviously the scene where Villanova upset that mighty Georgetown team. Villanova being a Philly team, you're on the scene there in Lexington at Rupp Arena covering that game. That's one of the most famous games in college basketball history. What do you recall specifically about that game? Uh, a, a bunch of stuff. It was a crazy day. The day of the... First of all, Villanova was an eighth 
seeded team in in the tournament. The, the the game before the Big East tournament, they lost to Pitt by 25 points on the road. And, I'm th- and I think they needed to, and then they drew Pitt in the first round of the Big East tournament. I'm figuring if they don't win this game, this team's not going to go to the NCAA. And uh, and they they win the game, and then they lose to St. John's because they could never beat St. John's in the semifinals. Uh, they get into the tournament and they play six perfect games. I mean, you, they beat three number one seeds. Wow, I, mean, I forget that three number one seeds. Yeah, they beat Michigan. They beat they they, they beat um, Memphis, and they beat uh, Georgetown. And on top of that. They beat two ACC teams. They beat they beat Maryland. They beat Carolina. I mean, it was it was an unbelievable run, and they played six perfect games. You know, Raleigh doesn't get enough credit. I think. Raleigh Massimino, the coach of the yeah, Wildcats, yeah. before the, uh, the the shot clock and before the uh, uh, before the three point shot, I think he was as good a coach as anybody because if he got the lead and uh, there were four minutes left, the game is over because they, they just never made mistakes. They just spread the floor and made every key three throw. It was unbelievable. They were Nothing phased them. They had three seniors, the McLean brothers and, and McLean brothers, the McLeans and, and, and Eddie Pinckney. And uh, they had been all been through the Big East Wars. They all were confident enough. They all knew each other from the time they were at Five Star Camp. And they had Harold Presley and uh, 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 a guard band of Harold Jensen. And it just, it all fell together. I mean, look, in that game against Georgetown, they shoot 78 for the game, 90% for the second half. Uh, and, and and it was like destiny. The day of the game, Al Severance, the old Villanova coach, passes away. He's down in he's down in Lexington, and he passes away. So that makes it hard. Jake Nevin, the old leprechaun who was the longtime trainer for Villanova, and has ALS. He's in a wheelchair. I mean, the game is coming down the stretch. It's a foul with like twenty seconds left. Harold Presley is going to the line to shoot two shots. He goes over, rubs Jake's head, and says, these are for you, Jake. He made them both. After the game ends, you know, Georgetown was a 13-point favorite. No one thought Villanova had much of a chance, even though Villanova was competitive with Georgetown in both the regular season games. Eddie Pinckney and Dwayne McLean run over to... uh, to press row, jump on press row, and the game was played on April 1st. And they start screaming, April Fools, April Fools. It was it was great. I know I didn't sleep that night, and uh, uh, I think Rolly drank and smoked his way through the rest of the night. <laughs> and uh, the next day, I, got, I was able to hitch a ride back with Dono on the team charter. Yeah, didn't Raleigh ask you to fly back to Philly with the team? He did, and and I and I got John Feinstein on a, on, a, on the plane too because he wanted to come. And uh, we get off the plane, and all of a sudden we're in the middle of a parade. I mean, it it was it was great in Philadelphia, which I think never really had the great affinity for Villanova because Rolly recruited all these kids outside the city and hardly ever recruited kids in the city. But Philadelphia fell in love with Villanova for that day. And I still remember two months later, Villanova goes to the White House. And I still remember pinching myself and saying, did, did I dream this? Did this really happen as I walked in, walked through the gates and into the Rose Garden? It was, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's something you never really forget. And that, right after that, as you remember, the Nets offered Rolly the job. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to Bonova's uh, banquet, and uh, he had invited Jimmy Valvano uh, to, uh, to the banquet. And I'm with Jim, and Jim says, "Come, come out here with me." And he, and he does a 
he does um, a, a, a quick two-minute radio show. He says three hundred dollars. He, Jimmy, was the first person that really made money outside of coaching, and I think he convinced Rolly that you should do what you love as opposed to just doing things for the money because you can make money if you stay in college basketball. The next year, Rolly was cutting down. What Rolly was Rolly was cutting supermarket ribbons, and uh, he had his own TV show. So, <laughs> well, so things he, started things started to change, right? I mean, in some ways, it kind of changed the Big Five, then, right? Yeah, well, I, I I always have some regrets about that. Was the same year? It was the last year of the contract? Villanova and Temple wanted to go their own way. They wanted to start. They they felt like they didn't want to share all the revenue. When you played in the Big Five, you you shared the revenue six ways. Uh, each team got a got got a sixth, and then Penn, which uh, supplied the facilities, got another sixth for running the events and you know supplying the ushers and stuff like that. So, and but Villanova was drawing the most crowds, so they they built their own arena for home games and they would play their big games at the Spectrum. And Temple said, well, we can't get left behind. Hey, John Chaney was a pretty good coach, Hall of Famer. And um, he he was competing against Villanova for best team in the city. And uh, they had built um, an arena. Uh, they had an arena at McGonagall Hall and decided to play all of their games all their home games up there. So the Big Five started to collapse. And the sad part, Todd, is the fact that there are generations of people who have never gotten a chance to see a game in the Palestra. I mean, it, I mean, it's always sad for me to go past there when it's dark. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, really, the Big Five started changing in the 80s, and college basketball started changing. With yeah, growth, With growth, more revenue comes change. But when you think about the NCAA tournament and where it is today, it really ignited in the 80s. You mentioned before 86, no shot clock, no three-point line. The game was different. You had seniors. Think about the talent in the 1982 final oh, between North Carolina and Georgetown. Georgetown had Ewing and Sleepy Floyd. And Carolina is trotting out senior James. Well, I guess he was a junior. <laughs> they're, they're trotting out James Worthy, Sam Perkins, and some freshman known as Mike Jordan, all on the floor. Yeah, I know it's great. It was like it was like an introduction to Naismith, because they, you know they're all great, great players. I mean, uh, and and it's and it's kind of stayed that way. I mean, the heroes of the Final Fours were guys like. Uh, Danny Manning or Glenn Rice. I mean, you had guys who stayed through their college career, and uh, it didn't. It started changing mid '90s, the Kobe Garnett draft, and then it got kids. But kids were leaving out of high school. I don't ever remember the heavy uh, shift to kids leaving one and done until. Uh, we got to the last part of the first uh, decade of the 21st century. Right. And then now, if kids stay more than one year, they pe- people are saying, what's wrong with them? And it's a shame because you used to get to know the players. I think that's what made college basketball special. You followed a kid's career from the freshman team up through three years of uh, – uh, a, a varsity competition and kids love playing for the front of the jersey. Let's talk about the final four because you've been to 48 right. of them. You're aiming to get to 50 and you will. What is it about the final four that has been so special? That event? When did it start becoming what we know as the final I think, four? I, th- I think it, it became a national event, Magic Bird. 
1979, uh, the, you had two bigger-than-life personalities. I mean, Indiana State was unbeaten. Magic had an unbelievable charismatic personality for an 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid. And uh, I think people fell in love with the game, um, fell in love w w w with the idea of playing a championship game. Uh, uh, dur during that year when the game was held out in, in, in Salt Lake, and it just got bigger from there. Now, you better have $600 if you want to go to the games. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, but basically, I mean, wait a minute. I mean, so, the two guys, so the two guys who changed the NBA also changed college basketball? I think so. I think so. And, and, and they made an immediate change the next year. I mean, the next year when Magic was a, a freshman, he wins the the NBA championship, and they play the 76ers in a game six where Kareem isn't on the floor, and he gets 42. Right. And the following year, yeah. Boston wins a championship with Larry Bird. It was unbelievable. And they, I mean, I was lucky enough. When I worked in Philadelphia, I would go to the Final Four. Then I'd go to the Penn Relays for a week because that was a big deal in Philadelphia. And then I'd go to the NBA playoffs because Phil Jasner, our Sixers writer, um, wanted to stick with the Sixers because everything they did was of interest to our readers. So I would cover the uh, the playoffs. I think I was in Boston one year long enough to vote. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I saw all of those Boston LA series. All and right. Well, was, tell us about those because those are as legendary as they get. Tell us about they, Bird Magic and the, yeah. the Celtics Lakers. I mean, I think that it became such a great rivalry because it was a great rivalry between the cities as well as every as everything else. And 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 it really picked up when you had a lot of celebrities who were sitting in the first row at the forum starting to travel. I still remember Jack Nicholson holding court in Boston Garden after a practice. People just wanted to be part of it. I mean, Nicholson actually had every game uh, taped. And when he would be making a movie, he would uh, not allow anybody to tell him what happened until he watched the tape in his trailer. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But you had... I mean, think about the players you had on the team. Look, the Celtics have got like 18 guys in the Hall of Fame, and four, four of them played on those teams. I mean, McHale and Parrish and Bird and Dennis Johnson all played on those teams. And there for a while, Reggie Lewis was on the team. I mean, you know, I mean, God knows how good they could have been if Len Bias hadn't died. And over and over in the Lakers, I mean, I mean, you, you had Kareem and Wilkes and uh, McAdoo. And, I mean, they were just, and Magic. I mean, it was just unbelievable talent. I told you, you couldn't win an NBA championship unless you had four guys who were at least fringe Hall of Famers. Now you can win with two. And sometimes, yeah, I would say two. You still need two to win. So the, so the guys who changed college basketball and the NBA, Bird and Magic, what are your first memories of both of them? When I was uh, covering the Sixers, I used to go watch college games with Jack McMahon, the great scout. And one night he says, come on, let's go to Terre Haute. i got to see this kid. Larry Bird is playing against Illinois State. Bird goes off for 41 as a junior. I walked back and said, oh my God, this kid's gonna change the game. I remember saying that to Bob Ryan, who had, didn't really know that much about him. His first year in Boston, he gets 60. As far as Magic is concerned, when Magic was in high school, he was considered one of the three best players in the country, along with Wayne McCoy and, and Gene Banks. And I still remember going down to see him play at the Capitol Classic. And I still remember he was going to go to Michigan or Michigan State. Dick Vitale was at Detroit at the time. He, he was going to try to steal him. He grabs <laughs> Magic, puts him, takes him over, and starts talking to him. And... Uh, he spent like a half hour trying to convince him to visit the University of Detroit, uh, and Magic ended up going to, uh, to to Lansing. But he, 
when he was a freshman, they ended up losing to Kentucky, right? Right. Uh, the year Kentucky won it. In a regional final in 78. And, then, yeah. and the next year, frankly, their team struggled out of the gate in the Big Ten. But by the end of the year, they were easily the best team in the country. I mean, I thought it was great. Penn, from our area, actually got to the Final Four in 79, and then they played Michigan State. And what everybody remembers is Michigan State breaking out to like a 21-2 to lead. And uh, to this day, people still say, time out, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and it was a 30-point game. But Get a T.O., how, Penn. That, that was how good they were. And frankly, for as much hype as went into the Bird Magic game, it, it really wasn't a close game. Michigan State was the dominant team in that game. Right, right. And the, the, one, the other thing that happened that year, Larry Bird wouldn't speak to the press. Uh, part of it was he would, and for a guy who I think is a pretty interesting, intelligent about basketball type guy, he he really didn't want to deal with the media, and that was that final four is the first time he talked all year, because he had to. And so Sunday afternoon, everybody was more excited to hear what he had to say, and he didn't really have to say that much. But as it turns out. I, went, I was actually on a nominating committee for the uh, Naismith Hall of Fame with him. And he was so smart, and he had such unbelievable perspective on who was really a Hall of Famer. I never forgot that. I, I, I always admired him. Well, both those guys, they knew talent. Talent knows talent, right? Yeah, and I, I, think, I think they were able to evaluate players who could win games when they played together. And back then, Red was still running the team. And, it, I mean, they just knew what worked. I mean, it, it, it was great stuff. I mean, and, and L.A. became kind of a landing strip for all of the great players. I mean, it, it started with Kareem when he went from Milwaukee to, to L.A., but... You know, after a while, everybody wanted to play there. You've written these books with guys like Patino and Kalapari. You've written about Shashevsky. You started covering college basketball in '73 for the Philadelphia Daily News with John. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, John Wooden was the guy then. John Wooden and the UCLA Bruins. So take us from Wooden to Shashevsky. Is there something about the Giants? of the coaching profession that you see a common theme during all those years you've covered? I think, I think consistency of success. Um, it was funny. I, I, I got to know when, when he, when I first started, because you had to talk to him. When, well, the first time I ever met him were at college, college park. It's, it's right after the national semifinals. Uh, a day before national semifinals, he just sits in the stands after practice and talks for an hour. I mean, it wasn't like they had all of these totally organized events where coaches would get up and you'd never see him again. But you had Adam, and frankly, there weren't that many media covering it. I mean, yeah. it went, I mean, if there were 200 members of the media, including TV types and network types, it was a lot. Well, the thing with Wooden is, I remember late in his life, I, I actually was fortunate enough to talk to him a couple times by telephone, and I remember one time talking to John for quite a long time where it got to the point where I was out of questions and he just seemed to want to have a nice conversation and it was it was kind of like I'm talking to John Wooden and we're just talking about things beyond basketball at that point. I spent Right after his 90th birthday, I went to California. I spent the day with him in his Encino apartment. Uh, and uh, it hasn't changed. You walk through, you feel like you're in a museum. He has so many plaques that they're littered all up and down the hallway. And then he has his wife's bedroom, which he has not changed since she had not changed since he passed away. But the one thing he had is he had an unbelievable mental uh, acuity, like late in life, and his ability to tell stories. And 
You know, he, he was like Dean before Dean came down with dementia. I mean, he remembered everything that happened in his life and remembered all of the people that he coached. And his daughter who just passed away, Nell used to come over and bring the mail every day and used to drive him to the games. They used to sit in the same spot every day when UCLA played played home games after he runs. And I actually went out to the uh, to his memorial service. I was there for a lot of moments after he left. I was there the day that they named the court after him. And what was so great about that day is a Saturday afternoon, he's there and at halftime they bring us back to the locker room and they have he and Walton and Kareem are all there, all answering questions. It was unbelievable because neither one of them had a reputation for being real press front media friendly they were unbelievable that day i mean you could you could have picked up enough stuff to write to write a book and john loved holding court back then i mean so to start of, so to start of your career it's wooden's the man and he's Wood, he, Wood was, i mean wooden won 10 right think about um, that so hoops at the start of your career covering college basketball in the early 70s john wooden was the man and at the end of your career here Shashevsky's going out, retiring as as the man. Wouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't one ten? Right. Think about that. Are there common things between those two when you think about it, Wooden and Shashevsky, that have made them so consistently successful? Besides, obviously, talent. They have great players. What is it about them as coaches? I'm a big believer in guys who are teachers and guys who have uh, a sense of fundamentally sound basketball. Uh, I think that you have to have um, certain things working for you. Uh, I think you have to have a school where you have the ability to recruit great players. Uh, Even though Duke was going through a down cycle when Krzyzewski first got there. Yeah, people forget that, right? I think that, that once Mike got it going, he managed to win in a highly competitive league at a regular time and in an era where it's a lot harder just to get to a Final Four because you need six wins uh, to win it all and four to get to a Final Four wouldn't basically needed two wins to get to a Final Four and most of them and and most of them were West Coast uh, teams that he yeah had you had be. less teams and the teams were really more regional they the were the, regional right. I mean and uh, the regions were made up of teams from that region that is correct part. right that is, that's correct and he uh, I mean Mike has been to Final Fours in four different decades 80 90 2000 2010s. And again, he's had great talent, but there's you, you can have great talent and wasted. What? Why well, has he been able to do this? I think that up until recently, okay, and recently he hadn't been there for a while. Uh, but up up until recently, I think that kids would stay longer. I don't think you had a lot of one and dones. He didn't lose his first player to a one and done until 1999. The rest of those kids all stayed four years, so he could build a, build build his own culture, and they bought into everything he was selling, both academically and athletically. Now he's in a situation where he's desperate to hang another banner before he leaves this year, and I think that he started recruiting a lot of one and dones and kind of. He kind of tried to duplicate John Calipari's philosophy. And I think it takes away from your success because you can't possibly have the same level of, of, of success if you only have the kids one year. I think it's hard. So the common thing between the guys like Wooden, Knight, Smith, it's beyond the talent. It's the teaching, do you the think? The teaching and the culture that they create in the program where, where kids expect to win. And kids, and, and and kids are willing to buy into the chemistry that you need to win. I mean, look, I'm sure Alcindor could have averaged as many points as Maravich if he won. I mean, they actually put in a dunking rule to stop him after he got 50 in the UCLA freshman varsity game. Uh, 
I mean, no change in uh, the rules to stop you. Yeah. You're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. And uh, I think that 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 Mike once he once he got that one class, the the class in '86 with Dawkins and uh, and Allery and Billis and um, Henderson and Amaker that got to the final game against Louisville. I mean, they were a regular in the. Uh, in, in, in the final four, I mean, 86, 87, 89, you know, I mean, 90, 91, 92, 94. I mean, that, that's pretty unbelievable. I mean, when you get double-digit final fours and you get five national championships, you're doing something right. Do you have a favorite Krzyzewski story? Uh, I remember when he first was at Duke. And they weren't winning. And the Iron Dukes wanted to get rid of them. And I think after they lost badly to Virginia in the ACC tournament, and they started the next season poorly, I think he thought he was going to get fired. And he went in there, and the AD, rather than firing him, said, I'm going to give you an extension. And that would not have happened now with all the social media and all of the the fan bases have lost their patience. I mean, the idea of coaches staying at a school for 30 years, I mean, you know, you might see it with Bayheim. I mean, he might be he might be the last one that, that, that starts and finishes his career at the same spot. I yeah. mean, it, too it, much he, money, too much attention, too much right. instant, instant judgment. Yeah. I, I mean, it, every game you're you're on the chopping block every game. And if you don't win, you end up being in a situation where people are looking for the next big thing. Hey, listen, now they're firing college football coaches after two games. Yeah, right. (laughs) Pretty amazing. Well, the Duke AD, Tom Butters, saw something in Krzyzewski that was worth sticking. He did, and I'll give him credit. And look, here's a guy who got the job, and he was an Army, and... It wasn't like Army. It wasn't like the night era when Army was in the NIT every year. I mean, you know, Mike. Mike had Mike had at least one losing season there, and when he went there, I still remember when he was introduced. None of the media knew how to pronounce his name, <laughs> so he had to actually pronounce it for him. Well, I remember when I would cover the tournament, I'd have it like written on a piece of paper how to spell it, and I taped it. I taped it to my it's keyboard. Extra, it's the extra Z. Taped it to my keyboard, so I'd always remember it. You know, That's and so and great. it's funny. You know, you probably don't recall, but when he won the title in 2015, hoops, you and I were sitting side by side at midcourt when they beat Wisconsin. We're right there, midcourt, front row. I'm sitting there with Dick Weiss, and I'm thinking. As a kid from Kentucky who loves basketball, this is heaven. I'm sitting here with hoops. I'm sitting here at the Final Four at midcourt, and I'm watching one of the all-time great coaches uh, do his job. Well, hoops, you've won all these awards. You're in Hall of Fames, but what what keeps you going? Why still do it? You know, I still I think it keeps you young. I think if you go to an event and you're sitting on courtside, you can feel the electricity from young people. And I think it's, I, I, I like that feeling I get. Look, I, I'm, I guess I'm still one of the few people that still get goosebumps before the start of a Final Four every year. It's just, you, you just feel like it becomes your identity after a while and you feel like it's part of your life. And I've, I've been really lucky because they, I mean, the places I worked have sent me all over and I've gotten a lot of life experiences, particularly in basketball. I mean, just how often does do, do people actually get to do a job that they love? Not often. And do it as well as you have hoops. That's why you're hoops. I mean, think about it. <laughs> You've got the name. Not many people are synonymous with a sport. And Dick Weiss, you are definitely synonymous with basketball. Hoops, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed having you. Yeah, it was so good to talk to you. I, I mean, I, you were one of my favorites when I used to go to Columbus, and you're still one of my favorites now. Well, thanks, Hoops. The check's in the mail. I like that kind of talk. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. All right. <laughs> thanks for listening to Press Box Access. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.